Good morning, church. Um, it, will, it really is a joy and privilege to be up here this morning and opening God's word with all of you. Um, before you get started, will you pray with me? Father God, today, Lord, as we gather here and sit under your word, Father, we promise to meditate on what we know to be true, and that's that we've died to sin, that we were buried and that we've been raised to newness of life through the faith that we have in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we know that we belong wholly to you and can never be separated from your love. And it's because we know this to be true, Father, that we present our minds, our hearts, our hands, our eyes, our feet, all that we are, Lord, for your service and for your glory. We ask now, Father, that you would strengthen us by your word and by your spirit, that you would continue to conform us into the image of Jesus, and that you would help us, Lord, be distinct and visible in this world. Lord, we know that this is an impossible task on our own, but by the power of your spirit, we know it's possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I invite you to take your Bibles out and turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. I know we've been doing a series on 1 Peter called Exiles, um, but in lieu of Pastor Tim uh, spending Sunday with his beautiful baby boy, we're going to continue that theme, but we're going to be looking at it in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, as you're turning there, let me, stay, let me set the stage a little bit for us. Uh, the Gospel of Matthew was written by one of the 12 disciples named Matthew. And he was a tax collector, which means that all of the fellow Jews in the community would have seen him as a traitor. And the reason they saw him this way was, as a tax collector, he was working, collaborating with Roman authorities. And so when he would collect the money, he would get more than was required. He would be filling his own pocket. And so Matthew was growing rich by robbing his own people. And it's this Matthew that the Lord Jesus, the King of Kings, calls to be one of the twelve. And it's only by the grace of God, through Christ, that a thieving traitor can become a child of God who writes one of the four Gospels that we have in our Bible. And the reason I want to share that before we get into the message is because I just want us to remember that no sinner is so far from the grace of God that God can't grab a hold of them, save them, and use them for his, his mission. And so with that said, we're going to be looking at a section in Matthew chapter 5 that's part of perhaps the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And in verses 1 through 12, Jesus is unpacking what it means to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. You can call the Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12, almost Discipleship 101. And after he unpacks those, he gives two powerful illustrations showing how if you live that way, this is the impact you should be having on the world. So let's read this morning's passage, Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all those who are in the house. 
Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And so what we're going to see this morning, the big idea of verses 13 through 16, is that followers of Jesus are to live lives that are distinct from the world, but visible in the world. And so our first point is going to be, to be salt means to be distinct. But in order for us to grasp the impact of what Jesus is saying here, there's a couple things we need to know about salt as it was understood back then. We tend to look at salt primarily as a flavoring for food, something you throw on your, on your french fries or whatever. But when Jesus spoke these words, salt was looked at first and foremost as a preservative. Because back then, they didn't have refrigerators and they didn't have freezers. So in order to preserve meat and other foods from rotting and decaying, they had to cover it with salt or put it in some kind of brine. And so I wanted to look into that. Like, how does exactly did that work? And what it is is that salt brings about dehydration. It removes all of the water molecules that are in the food. Um, and so back, all the water molecules, the bacteria needs to grow in the food. And so the salt that's on the outside draws, draws out the water that's on the inside. And when it's all said and done, there's an equal amount of salt, both inside and outside. And scripturally, we see that they understood this about salt because even in the Old Testament, there was something called a covenant of salt. And it carried the sense of an enduring cover, covenant, a covenant that wouldn't expire, a covenant that would endure and be preserved. And so in Numbers 18, verse 19, it says, I give to you and to your sons and daughters all the holy contributions that the Israelites present to the Lord as a permanent statue. It is a permanent covenant of salt before the Lord and for you as well and your offspring. Or in 2 Chronicles 13.5, Do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? So salt preserves. It allows something to endure, to not decay. So that was the way they primarily understood it. But they also did understand that salt was something that added flavor to food. Uh, in Job chapter 6, it says, Can something tasteless be eaten without salt? So just like we throw salt on french fries, I throw salt on everything. Uh, people back then liked to use salt as a, a flavoring as well. So knowing that, I think we're able to get into the passage a little bit more. One of the first things we're called to do when Jesus calls the salt of the earth is to be engaged in preserving. And I think all of us would agree that we live right now in a world that's just in moral decay. It just is. But it's not anything new. It's been happening this way since Genesis chapter 3. When our first parents, Adam and Eve, disobeyed God and thereby allowing sin into the world. And from that point forward, the history of humanity has been one of pain, hurt, evil, deception, and brokenness. It's just been ongoing decay. And in the face of all this, sometimes it feels like the world is tearing apart at the seams. And it leaves many of us at times feeling anxious. 
wanting to run away from the world, create our own Christian community. But as we see in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. It's not what Jesus is calling us to at all. Jesus has not called us to be gathered into a corner, but he wants us spread around the world. He wants us engaged in this preserving process. And I know that sounds good, but if we're honest, it's getting harder and harder to live out our faith, to live out our calling in the world we live in, in the public square. You start feeling, maybe I just need to retreat and run away from all of it. Or some get clenched their fists and they get angry about what's happening. Others want to fight for more and more political power because we'll take it by might. And then some people just want to bury their heads in the sand and act like nothing's going on, nothing's changing. None of those are, are the response that God calls us to. We are called to remember that God is sovereign. He's 100% in control of everything that's happening right here, right now, in this country. He always has been in control, and that should cause us to rejoice and then recognize that the world, whether they know it or not, needs the church. It needs us because we are redeemed image bearers. And we're called to go and live that out. And in so doing, people will be drawn to Christ. Now, as a side note, here in verse 13, when he says, you are the salt of the earth, that you is plural. So you never take salt and just sprinkle one little grain on something when you're, when you're cooking or seasoning your food, right? Salt is meant to be used collectively. And so this part of the mission that Jesus is talking about, yes, is for you and I individually, but it's our mission as the body of Christ. The church is to be sprinkled not just the individual believer. The salt of the earth. The earth, it's global. It's a global mission. So as as you read that God calls us to be, Christ is calling us to be the salt of the earth, the question I think we need to be asking ourselves is, okay, so how do we engage in this preserving process? What does that look like? And so the answer to that is actually found right above it in verses 3 through 9. So let's look at those and let's read those. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure at heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. That's what a salty Christian should look like. Salty Christians recognize their need for God's help to live in this world. They see their sin and their failure and they mourn over it and ask for forgiveness, not just vertically with the Lord, but horizontally among our fellow men and women. Christians that are seeking to be a preserving agent 
are not driven by their own personal agendas or their own personal longings for success, but rather they live with a posture of trust and submission to God. They thirst and hunger for righteousness. They long for God's righteous character to fill every square inch of this globe. And they live lives that are just spilling over with kindness, with goodness, with compassion, and with forgiveness to everyone. It's not, a, it's not contingent. We just give as we've received from the Lord. And we seek to live a life that's marked by a joyful holiness, both inwardly and outwardly. And he says, peacemakers, we don't hold grudges but we're actively involved in being reconciled to everyone, in fostering forgiveness and in looking for restored relationships. And that's just not in the church. That's with those even outside the church. That's how we engage in a decaying world. That's how we do this preserving thing that salt is supposed to do. And I promise you that if we live that way, the world is going to take notice and the Holy Spirit will bring about change like we can't even imagine. But salt is also a flavoring like we saw. And so we're to be engaged in flavoring the world. Wherever God places us and wherever God calls us to, the world should be better for it. Wherever you are right now in life, that place should be better because you are there and the Spirit of God lives in you. And I know that can sound like a really arrogant statement at times. But have you ever stopped to marvel at the fact that God, who is the creator of everything good and beautiful, and made us in his image and has redeemed us, has now also asked us to be his mouthpiece, his hands and his feet? That means you and I are meant to be engaging this world. Now, the people of God often think that all we are supposed to be doing is declaring the gospel. But that's not true. Now, don't misunderstand me. The proclaiming of the gospel and the making of disciples is the most important thing we do, but not the only thing we do. Our faith should also be moving our hands and our feet to live in such a way that we're constantly raising the bar and setting the standard for the glory of God and the good of the people. And historically, it's always been that way. So in science, we've had Galileo, we've had Pascal, we've had Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Sir Francis Bacon, and many more. In writing, we've had Jane Austen, G.K. Chesterton, uh, Madeleine Lengel, Flannery O'Connor, Charles Dickens, Jonathan Edwards, George MacDonald, John Bunyan, and many more. I can go on and on on books. In music, Handel, Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, Brahms, Wagner. In just about every arena of society, men and women of God have always been the ones setting the standard and raising the bar for the glory of God and the good of the people. Always. And I want us to be those kind of people as a church. 
I want the quality of everything we say and we do and how we live to be that much better because a divine salt has been sprinkled on it. But this, this flavoring that salt provides isn't just for those big things in life. It's for the everyday stuff of life. So this, this flavoring that salt gives should be evident in the type of spouses we are, in the types of sons and daughters we are, employees and bosses that we are, the types of students and athletes we are, the types of friends and neighbors we are. It should be evident in the way we deal with the loss of a loved one or the way we handle losing a job or when the doctor tells us we have cancer. That salt should mark us distinct there. Or the way we handle feeling lonely and being ridiculed because we're living out our faith in the hallways of our schools or on our teams. The flavoring, that salt that God gives, should be evident right there in all those day-to-day lives. It should mark us as distinct from the world and adding flavor to the world. Because salt that stays in a salt shaker is absolutely useless. Now, in verse 13 there at the second half, Jesus gives a warning and he says, But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And so before going on to this next illustration of light, Jesus wants to make sure we understand here not to lose our saltiness. Now, strictly speaking, salt can't lose its saltiness. But what was possible back then was for the salt to become contaminated, to be mixed with other impure substances, and as a result, it couldn't become a preserving preserving agent or a flavoring agent. It was literally just thrown on the ground to kill grass. So salt that loses its distinctness is salt that has lost its power and influence. What Jesus is saying there is followers of Christ are called to be influencing the world but not be influenced by the world. When we as followers of Christ adopt the world's character and conduct, we're going to lose our ability to effectively represent Jesus. And draw others to his kingdom. Now what's really interesting is that word tasteless literally means foolish. So if salt represents disciples and tasteless represents fo- is foolish, I think we can maybe render the verse to say, but if disciples become foolish, how can they have a preserving and flavoring influence again? You can't. Jesus says it's no longer good for anything. I don't know if you've ever had that happen, especially early on in my faith. There was a, I was a very foolish disciple. And I compromised my Christian integrity on multiple occasions. And then when God was starting straightening me out and I was trying to really witness to these people again, that salt didn't have a saltiness to them. He said, no. Now, by the grace of God and the power of his spirit, God can do an amazing thing. On our own, we can never become salty again. 
but through genuine repentance, confession, and trust, God can make you salty again. But what Jesus is doing here is he's giving a warning. He's not saying that it's never possible. But we shouldn't presume on cheap grace. Our character and our conduct should reflect that of our king. So how do we know if we've lost our saltiness? Let's take a couple of diagnostic questions here. Do we approach life in a manner that's countercultural? Is there a distinct difference in how you approach pleasure than that of somebody who doesn't have Christ? Is there a distinct difference in how you approach the gaining and spending of money than that one who does not have Christ? Is there a distinct difference in how you approach romantic relationships than that of someone who doesn't have Christ? Is there a distinct difference in how you approach forgiveness than that of somebody who does not have Christ? Is there a distinct difference in how you approach love and your understanding of it? Is there a distinct difference in the dreams and goals you have for yourself or for your children than that of someone who doesn't have Christ? Is there a distinct difference in the conversations we have with people in our schools or in our workplaces than that of someone who doesn't have Christ? Those are questions to help us start thinking. Is there a, salt, is there a divine saltiness about us or not? Because, brothers and sisters, in order for salt to be useful, it has to stay pure and unmingled. It has to stay distinct. Salt has to remain an influencing substance, not an influenced substance. So let's keep our eyes on Christ. Because we know that if we really do, by the power of the Holy Spirit, commit ourselves to preserving and to flavoring the world we're in, then something amazing is going to happen. People become thirsty because salt creates thirst. Salt creates thirst. You ever have like a really good slice of pizza and then you feel like you're going to just fall on the floor dehydrated because it's so salty? That's what salt does. It creates thirst. We're called to live in such a manner that the more people interact with us, the more they're going to see their need for Jesus. And Jesus is living water. And then, hopefully, they will be looking to hear him say, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I'll give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. John 4, 13. Therefore, let's remember that as followers of Christ, we're to live lives that are distinct from the world, but visible in it. So this brings us to our second point. It's going to be verses 14 through 16. To be light means to be visible. Uh, So just like we did with salt, we're going to take a step back real quick and make sure we understand how the Bible defines and uses light. In Scripture, light is often used as a symbol for God. And so in Job 24, 13, the wicked are those who rebel against the light. They don't recognize its ways or stay on its paths. More specifically, we see that Light is used to describe the holy character of God. God is light and in him there is absolutely no darkness at all. 1 John 1.5 1 
Or 1 Timothy 6.16, speaking of God, who alone is immortal and lives in unapproachable light. So light is a symbol for God in general. But in the New Testament, we drill down and we see that light is specifically used to talk about our King Jesus. So in John chapter 8, Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Meaning he is the great light of salvation. He's the one in which people must run to and trust for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But here's the amazing thing. When we put our faith in Jesus, our life is hidden in Christ. We become united to him. So if Jesus is the light of the world and we are hidden in Christ, then the people of God are also lights to the world. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.8, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. So the first thing we see here is that light reveals. Verse 14, You're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Light reveals things as they really are. It's, what, it's the main purpose of light to display, to expose, to unveil. And so salt told us we need to be preserving against decay. It needs to be flavoring. And light is telling us that the world needs illumination because it's in darkness. And by doing so, Jesus is identifying us as light. And he's making it very clear that the world is in darkness. Now, I don't mean, when I say the world's in darkness, I'm not saying everything in this world is horrible. There's a lot of beauty and good in this world. We're talking as it relates to God and the character and laws of God. The world is in darkness. And again, he says, the light, he says that you are the light of the world. Again, he wants to make sure, especially back then, that the Jewish audience would understand this is bigger than just our people group here. This is for everyone spread across the globe. That means we need to not be greedy with salt. We need to not be greedy with our light. We need to know that everybody and anybody needs this. The world needs the people of God to turn the lights on. They're walking around in darkness. And so the first thing we need to take notice of is that the, as lights of the world, we're called to reveal to the world the person and the purpose of Jesus Christ. Because he's the true light. That's the first thing we're called to reveal. Isaiah 49.6 I will also make you a light of the nation so that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Or Jesus' last words, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And in 1 Peter, which we're studying when we get to chapter 2, verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Salt was focused on our character and conduct. Light is focusing us on the mission and message. 
the church is God's lighthouse. It's the lighthouse that God has given us to be. And just to make sure he, that his audience gets it, he says, you are a city, set, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. He's highlighting the impossibility of hiding the message of Christ and the mission of Christ. To hide that about ourselves would be the equivalent of putting a city on a hill and trying to hide it. You just can't do it. And so I think it's very important for us to think on the how we live. How we live is extremely important. But even more important is the why we live the way we do. Because if all we ever do is live a Christian moral ethic, but never share why in fact we are Christians, we're not living our calling and we're robbing people of the chance to come out of darkness and into light. The how and the why should be as evident to everybody as a city that is set on a hill. I thought about the fact when I've been on a plane at night and you're flying into Chicago and downtown Chicago is just lit up. You just can't miss it if you look out your window. In that same way, we should be lighting the evening sky. I don't remember where I heard it once, but they said stars are always shining. But they're only evident to us in the darkness of night. Now, light reveals, but light also guides. And so, verse 15. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Again, to light a lamp and then cover it is both foolish and pointless. It's not, you're not allowing the lamp to do what it was created to do. Jesus is saying... You are to be visible. I am to be visible through you. To be a follower of Jesus isn't to be part of some secret society. It's actually the complete opposite. Everybody should know that we're followers of Christ where we live. Do your neighbors know that you're a follower of Jesus? Or would they be totally surprised? Like, oh, I was just wondering why your car was missing every Sunday. I didn't know you were going to church. Right? They should know. We shouldn't be obnoxious. But we should be visible. It should be known. Now, a lamp gives guidance. Right? A lamp helps people, helps people see where they are and where they are going. So as followers of Jesus, we're not only to reveal the person and purpose of Christ, but we're also to be guiding people to him. It's interesting, in the Gospel of John, when it's talking about John the Baptist, it says that he was a burning and shining lamp. There was no missing John if you came across him. And John the Baptist's entire life was consumed with one great purpose— to prepare everybody for the coming of the Messiah. And so he did a baptism for the forgiveness of sins so that when Jesus came on the scene, the people were ready to receive eternal life. And John was faithful to that calling 
And he was courageous, and it cost him his life. But he wasn't going to put his light under a basket. It reminded me of the words of Jim Elliot, the missionary who died long ago. He is no fool who gives what he cannot gain. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let your light shine. Are people going to take notice? Yeah, that's the point. Sometimes we're like, well, what are people going to think? I don't know. It's better they think something about your faith than think nothing about it. The church, the local church, is God's plan to reach the world. And so North Suburban is God's plan to reach this local community. That's why we're here. We're called to be a light to the North Shore. We're not here just so people think, wow, those are really nice people. We're here so that people can say, I need living water. I need to be pulled out of darkness. I need eternal life through Christ. So whether you're a seminary-trained Christian, or you've been a Christian since as long as you can remember, or you just came to faith yesterday, you've been given a light. You are a lamp. And so it's like the little song goes, this little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. It's a cute song the kids sing, but just a whole lot more truth in there that convicts me. God can use a nursery rhyme to awaken a church, maybe. So light reveals, light guides, and light attracts. So verse 16, last part. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Church, we need to live out publicly what is true for us personally. It's, it is a personal relationship I have with the Lord, but it also should be a public relationship I have with the Lord. In the early church, they would line up the Christians and they would ask you to say, Caesar is Lord. That's all you had to say and you keep your head. But they weren't going to be just personal with every public, No. Jesus es curios. Jesus is Lord. Lost their head. Next guy. Jesus is Lord. Off with their head. By the time you get to the end of the line, I, that guy at the end of the line, I mean, I think the first guy could be pretty brave, right? But if you're the last guy in line seeing this, and you're seeing your friends die over three words, Jesus is Lord, you've got to be wondering, like, I could worship him in my house. I don't got to be obnoxious with it. I don't want to be offensive. Right? It's really going to hurt my witness if I do this. So I'll just be personal about my faith in my house, invite people over for dinner, and we'll just talk about it there. That's not what the early church said. The early church knew, fear not he who can kill the body, but fear who can kill the body and cast the soul to hell. So they said, Jesus is Lord. They let their light shine in that darkest hour. They lived out publicly what was true for them personally. Why? One, because they knew it was true, but two, because they were consumed with the glory of God, which is what verse 16 says, that they may glorify your Father who is in heaven. So these good works that Jesus is speaking of, we've seen is the character and conduct in verses 1 through 12. It's also the mission and message of Christ. 
Those are the good works. Now, I wish I could tell you that to live as salt and light means that everybody's going to love you, they're going to want to be your friends, they're going to invite you to dinner and all the fancy parties, but that's not true. It's increasingly not true. But if we're faithful in what God's called us to, God will be glorified. And the glorifying of God, right? The name of God being lifted high and shining should consume your heart greater than anything else in the world. It should be the greatest delight we have. Now, now God being glorified isn't dependent upon people responding favorably. Rather, it's by them knowing unmistakably that God lives in you. I want you to hear that again. Think about this. God's being glorified is not dependent upon people responding favorably to us, but rather by them knowing unmistakably that God lives in us. That's how God is glorified, through our good works. When God saved you by his grace, is what he created you to do, to walk in good works. We saw it earlier in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let your light shine. Let your good works be evident in that way so that the glory of God will be acknowledged. One final word on verse 16. At the end there, he says, Your Father who's in heaven. I thought it was really interesting. It's the first time in Matthew's gospel that God is referred to as Father. It's a very, very strong word of love and comfort. Exiles who live as salt and light are going to experience difficulties and loneliness. But in those moments, we can take heart and remember that the God who created the cosmos is also the God who is our Father in heaven. The God who holds all things together stands right beside you as you seek to be salt and light. And so therefore, as followers of Christ, we need to remember that our lives are to be distinct from the world, but visible in the world. So closing here. Our king has called us to be salt and light. He's called us to be distinct and visible. Our king lives in us, and he's the one who makes us this salt, and he's the true light that shines through us. Which means... It's very liberating. It means we don't need to sit around and devise cool, new, creative ways to get people interested in Jesus. I'm not saying there's no place for creativity, but that we don't need to be consumed like, if I don't come up with this really catchy way, they're not going to come to faith. We simply need to have a character and a conduct that mirrors that of Christ. And then we need to open our mouths and shine the light of the message of Christ. It's not going to be an easy way to live. And it's an impossible way to live, actually. You cannot do it. You completely have no chance of doing this on your own. Our only hope in being salt and light is first and foremost having faith in Christ and knowing that his Holy Spirit is working in us because apart from the Holy Spirit, we can do nothing. Second, we need to have our eyes so fixed on the glory of God 
in our hearts, so longing to dwell in the presence of God that it's just spilling out everywhere. It changes everything. It's not an understatement to say that the glory of God should so captivate you that it changes the way you make mac and cheese. It really should. It should change everything. And thirdly, we need to be rejoicing. Prior to verses 13 through 16, he said this, starting at verse 10. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. To live as salt and light is to live as exiles, but not exiles who are joyless, but as exiles who are flourishing on the margins as we've been seeing. Our King Jesus lived distinct from the world. Our King Jesus is the true and visible light. And for some, he was an aroma from death to death, but for others, he was an aroma from life to life. And if we're going to be found faithful, it'll be no different for us. So let's be salt and light. Let's be distinct and visible. Let's remember that as followers of Jesus, we are to live lives that are distinct from the world, but visible in the world. Let's live that way, church. Let's pray. Father God, you have called us first as your, to be your children through Jesus. But you haven't called us to be children who sit idle until you return, Lord. But you've called us to be children who are to both be engaged in the preserving of this world, but also the flavoring of the world. To be children who are lights to the world that are not hidden. And so, Father, we pray now through our faith in Jesus and the indwelling of you, Holy Spirit, that you would just do a work in our hearts, individually and corporately, as, North, as the church here in North Suburban, that this community will know we are distinct because of our salt and that they would create a thirst for Jesus and that we would be a light that would reveal, guide, and attract others to Jesus. Father, as we engage in all that, Help us fall more in love with you for who you are. And may your glory be the consuming passion of our life. Show me your glory, Lord, that we may show it to others. In Jesus' name.